The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping the structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we talk to David Pearson, Senior Principal at ARW Engineers, about building codes and resilience in structural engineering. What started as just a few questions turned into an exciting philosophical debate about resilience, building codes, and free markets. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's degree in structural engineering from UC San Diego. And I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager of our chemical anchoring portfolio in the U.S. and Canada. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas. I received my bachelor's in civil engineering from UT Austin and I'm currently an MBA candidate at Auburn. Before Matt introduce our guest, I would like to remind you that today marks the start of National Volunteers Month. April is a huge month for volunteering, and we couldn't be more excited to share the importance of this month. The entire month of April is National Volunteer Month, and within this big umbrella, there's also National Volunteer Week, also called National Volunteer Appreciation Week, from April 18th to 24th. Whether you're already actively volunteering or have an interest in getting started, now more than ever, people helping others is worth celebrating. Volunteers make so much possible and deserve our appreciation. How will you mark National Volunteer Month and Week at your organization? Matt, what kind of volunteering have you been doing recently? I've recently been going back to uh, my alumni. Recently, I went to Cal Poly Pomona and gave presentations and was part of a panel to help them prepare for the career fair and give them career tips so they can prepare for the industry. What about you? I love that. That's such a great way to give back and such an easy thing to do. It's funny. Usually my volunteering has to do with little kids or, you know, like elementary school to middle school kids and getting them into STEM. But next week, I'm also going to be on an alumni panel called Queer Careers for the LGBTQ students of UT Austin. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, David Pearson. David Pearson is the vice president of ARW Engineers in Ogden, Utah. He's also an adjunct professor at Utah State University. He was the 2020 Engineer of the Year at the Utah Engineers Council, UEC, and received the 2019 Structural Engineer of the Year Award from the Structural Engineers Association of Utah. During his high school senior year, Dave took applied physics, applied math, and decided he would be a structural engineer. He spent a few years in the industry throughout Utah and California before joining ARW in 1991. As a principal engineer, he oversees multiple projects. The top three things he enjoys most in life is spending time and traveling with his wife and kids, seeing his kids work hard and succeed at their endeavors, and his version of golf, and debating what it means to have a subpar day of golf. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
We just briefly introduced you to our audience earlier on the call, but in your own words, can you share with us a little bit about what it is you do on a daily basis at ARW Engineers? Obviously, the funnest thing I do is design. I still love to do design. We do buildings here anywhere from you know small to very large commercial and, and industrial building. Where we've grown, we're now 33 engineers, and I'm a senior vice president. Obviously, a lot of what I do now is more administrative, which is okay. I like that. And then, you know, I, between my teaching at Utah State and I serving on these different committees that I serve on, that takes up a lot of my time as well. But when I get a chance to get into design, that's when I remember why I love structural engineering so much. And that's actually really the funnest part of it. You had some great articles on Structure Magazine. One of them was entitled, Who Hijacked My Building Code? Can you tell our listeners what the overall purpose of the building code is? In my opinion, the building code should be 100% life safety. It kind of originated in the U.S. with um, the Chicago Fire of 1871 and then the, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Those were two, kind of the two big trigger events that, that got us on the path to having a, a building code. If you've read those articles, you know this by now. I'm kind of a fan of more limited government. And so because the building code really is law, you know, it becomes basically the law that governs us. I'm much more a fan of limiting that, what I think government should reasonably be involved in. I think life safety is a good objective. There obviously can be a big debate about, okay, life safety for what demands. And there's a lot of discussion about that. But I feel like if we have demands that are like 100-year events, or in the case of earthquakes, in general, a 500-year event for an earthquake, and we design for life safety in those events, and then we let people on their own be a free market forces decide if they want to go beyond that. That would be my feeling about how a building code, what the purpose of the building code should be. Building codes get revamped every year and whatnot. Are you seeing more and more of non-life safety things that are making the structural engineer's job a little bit more of a hindrance? Because I definitely agree with the life safety, but then with, I guess, too many people putting their own codes or their non-life safety things in, and it kind of makes the job more difficult? It's not just that it makes it more difficult, because that's not really my thing. I don't argue against the complexity building code. I actually think a, a building code should be complex enough that you need to be an engineer and you need to pass the licensing exams and have that experience in order to apply the building code. I, I call that a barrier to entry, obviously, to our profession, right? And, and it kind of protects the profession. So I don't argue against that. What I do think is I think that things that creep into the building code beyond life safety, my concern about them is the cost that that puts into society because there's a big societal cost to that. Great example. Um, I don't know about California. In Utah, we have the energy code now requires basically all homes are two by six walls. And it's not anything to do with structure but it's to get enough insulation in the gap to meet the energy code. So all starter homes in Utah are now two by six walls versus two by four walls. Now, is that a huge cost? Maybe it's not a huge cost, but is it a necessary cost? Or should the homeowner be given the option of deciding if they want to do that or not? The homeowner isn't educated enough to make that decision on their own. You could argue that, but then you get into the point of the government playing nanny state. That's how I guess I would see that is that, and I disagree with the government are playing, you know, nanny state with people like that. So 
I do think that we need to give people the, the benefit of that and say, you know what, if they're given the right, the opportunity to say, okay, I can choose a two by four or a two by six wall on my house and the energy savings over so many years might be this much, but they look at it and say, you know what, we only have this much money. We need a refrigerator too. Whatever else it is, they, they can balance those out. That would be my argument. I didn't mean to completely just jump in and play devil's advocate. Honestly, I love to have the discussion because you really only learn, you really only progress when you hear other people's points of view. That's a great point of view, right? Is how does, and and I can relate to that. I have kids that are buying their first home right now. And I see that what the builders are selling them. And I realize that they're not really being given much of a chance to make these decisions. And part of that could be argued is the builder just saying, we're going to make these decisions for you because we know what's best for you. I'm not of that opinion. I, I would believe that, that they should be given more opportunity. And if they don't know, it's on them to learn it rather than to learn what they should choose rather than somebody to tell them and just say, you're going to spend this much money. And this is why. We've all observed that there have been an increasing number of disputes that arise on our modern day construction projects. And I'm sure part of that stems from the complexity, part of that stems from just the number of hands that are on a job site nowadays. And those who all want, you know, a seat at the table to be decision makers and someone has to be responsible for those decisions that are being made. In your opinion, who do you think should pay for the development and the promulgation of the building code? That is a really good question. It really is. And I think, honestly, I think that's a question that that is not debated very much. I don't hear people talking about this. I feel like we've gotten to the position where we are. So, of course, you go back to the 90s. We had the UBC, the SBC, and the, what was the other one? The, the Southern Building Code. And the, the there was a third. There were three major codes in the 90s, right? And then in the late 90s, where they all merged together to the I. CC, the International Code Council, we got the IBC. And then that's where we are. And now we have that. And that's the model code. And then each of the states then adopts the model code. And then they, you know, make whatever changes they want to, to that. The interesting thing to me about this is I feel like the building code is law. I consider the building code law. And law means that if I am under threat of state sanctioned penalty, if I don't obey that law, And I don't know of any other situation where the state has a law that somebody has to abide by and they have to pay to get that law. They have to pay money to find out what that is. I don't know that I have the answers on this. I really don't. But I do feel like if we're doing this, and this gets back to my argument that we make it a a simplified life safety code, if we're doing that for the good of the public, the public should pay for it via taxes. I do think that it should be funded via taxes because it's the law. And that's how all laws are done. We do have a very complex system right here with building codes in the in the whole construction industry. But I do think that it should go through taxes. I think that states should be required to pay those people who develop the code, to pay them for that, and then should be turning around and giving it to the users those design professionals who are under threat of state sanction penalties are required to comply with that because I have to go buy it. And, you know, I have to buy the IBC. I have to buy the NDS. I have to buy the TMS. I have to buy ASE, all of the codes. It's interesting because right now, the majority of the development of the code is paid for by the construction industry. You have AISC, TMS, ACI and AWC, American Wood Council, all of those are contractor or professional organizations 
basically they're funded by companies, private companies in the construction industry, you know, whether they're contractors or whether they're designers. And I, for instance, serving on the TMS, on the Masonry Society, the Utah Masonry Council pays my travel expenses to go to the meetings, but it's ARW that actually is paying my time for all that time that I'm there. And so I'm paying, and then I turn around and as soon as it's all done, I write out a check to buy the code back. Are you suggesting that we regulate the building code and that we should divert, that we should somehow split from the international building code and Americanize an IBC version? More, you wouldn't go any lower than what the IBC already claims unless you wanted to. But are you suggesting that we like regulate the building code? Here's how it happens in Utah. I'm the Legislative Committee Chair for the Structural Engineers Association of Utah. So I know what happens in Utah. So right now what happens is our state doesn't have a state building code. Well, they do. But the state building code is simply, it says we adopt the 2016 International Building Code and all reference standards to it, right? So what they do is they take that model code that ICC developed and then the IBC, and then they say, okay, now we've made it our own code. I haven't thought all the way through this because nobody will debate this with me. You never have these discussions with people very often. The thing that I see is I think that Utah should have to pay a licensing fee to whoever it is that they're getting that code from that they should have to pay a licensing fee to them. Once that licensing fee is paid, it needs to be free to all the users. Now, ICC claims that the IBC is free, but if you've ever tried to use the IBC's website to browse for the IBC, it's so cumbersome, right? Because you can't copy paste, you're limited to one section at a time, you can't do, you know, you can't page back and forth, you can't cross-reference, you can't mark it up, all those sorts of things that we need to do with our codes to make them really useful. I have my problems with ICC because I do feel like they're going way beyond. And I honestly, there's only one way that I know of to bring that back to the control of the people, because I feel like that is to get the states to stop adopting the code so quickly, because, you know, I think three years is just way too often to be publishing a a code. And ICC just insists on publishing a new one every three years. I mean, I did go back and look in 2008 when I started down this road, and I read some minutes from the meetings of the ICC. And in those minutes that I read, they talked about the fact of how worried they were about a longer building code cycle because of the loss of revenue. When you privatize something, but yep, revenue is one of the main considerations there. So I have a counterpoint that I'm curious about, and it doesn't have to do with revenue. It just simply has to do with the fact that technology is expediting and accelerating the amount of, of knowledge that we can garner, that we understand about new building materials and the way different systems fail or, or succeed. I see the three years as, I don't think it'll ever shorten because we're going to continue to see accelerated innovation and, and knowledge be able, and we want to share that in a quick manner so that our newest buildings are going to use the most sustainable techniques that use the most up-to-date information. So I can't imagine it getting any longer. I can actually imagine it being done in almost shorter sprints or rotating sprints for different chapters. And maybe it's broken down into, you know, different sections. Steel has been pretty consistent over the past number of years. Maybe steel is done every five years and new building materials like different types of tension-controlled fabrics are done every two years. Or maybe it's broken down to even more constituent parts than just the entire comprehensive code. You've hit on an idea that I think has not been adequately considered, and that is why even rewrite the code? Why not treat it like we treat, let's say, the the set of laws in the state of Texas? They don't get rewritten every year. 
What they do is they get amended basically every year by adding things that need to be changed, but the, the whole thing isn't redone. I can see a model similar to that, that where you say, okay, the building code is not even dated with a year. It's just the building code. We start with it now. And you mentioned, you know, steel. I think about masonry. I think about wood, concrete, and steel, all of those. The basic materials, since we had the Northridge problem back in the 90s with the Northridge connections, now we've added BRBs, buckling restraint brace frames. We've added steel plate shear walls. Those have been added in the past 25 years, but they don't require a complete rewrite of the code. You just add a section in for the design of those. I'm sitting in a building. We designed this to the 97 UBC. I'm not at all afraid of anything in here. To me, this building is plenty safe. No issues with it, right? Whatever changes there have been, like you say, there can be good changes. There there can be some things, but nobody's justified to me that they really are happening every three years. Literally heard people say, we need to make these changes. Otherwise, there's no reason for us to do a new version of the code. And when you're to that point, you really shouldn't be doing a new version of the code. It'd be nice if, yeah, the building codes were free because, yeah, we do have to pay for them. And I think there is a point to that law issue. If it is law, shouldn't people know what we're designing those for? But I could also see the, the bigger picture of if you, you know, go outside the design engineer, I guess kind of the ecosystem that it, it builds, it is a private one. And yeah, I'm sure there's that profit incentive. But then if you stop it, then maybe that's not just affect the money from those institutions, but I'm guessing it'll affect the academic industry too, because I'm sure a lot of researchers want to, I mean, that's what they're doing, right? They're testing. That's how they get funding for their laboratory tests. And a lot of my professors have a lot of stuff in their codes, right? Like, hey, I have my name in the code because I tested this section. I guess in the bigger picture, it'll affect a lot more than just money, but maybe all the universities too. I obviously don't know a lot, but that's kind of just what I'm thinking right now. That's It's really interesting and <laughs> a complex problem, too. It is, Matt. And that's an interesting point you bring up about research, because that's one of the things I pointed out in one of my articles. The problem with that, and I've seen this with being involved in the masonry side, the problem is you do get all these people doing research. They get their money to do their research. But the problem is you don't know the answers to your research until you're done. But you've already spent that money. And the best way for them to, them to justify what they did is to get a change put into the code. So what a lot of times we see happening, and we've seen this with masonry, I know I've seen this with masonry, is changes that are made that don't really make it better. They just change it and they're made so that they can justify, maybe it's a 2% change in the capacity, which is, we shouldn't even be doing anything for a 2% change in capacity, but they do it because then they can show that they got they got it into the code, which justifies the funding, justifies the funding that they got. They don't have easy answers, you're right, but research definitely does drive it. And that is one of the things that we see with the code is, is when research happens and you don't know what's, it's the same thing pharmaceutical people deal with. They start down the road to develop a, something and they don't know where they're going to end up at the end. They take a lot of risk. We don't have quite as much, but it's, it's a similar thing with professors at, at universities. I've always said there needs to be, we need to remember how much we don't know. When we make changes on the capacity side by less than 5%, we have to remember how little we know about the demand side. We do live loads with one significant figure, 20, 40, 60, 75, maybe two. Can or should building codes be used to implement social engineering via unelected government officials and organizations? 
I'm not hugely involved in politics, but because I am the legislative committee chair with SEAU, I, I do get involved with the Utah legislature. And if you know anything about the color of our state, we have a relatively conservative uh, state legislature, right? And I'm relatively conservative. So I think this comes down to the proper role of government, right? And your question would really have a lot to do, I think, with two things. One would be with the energy code. Should we be putting energy provisions into the code or should energy be regulated via the free market where we let the cost of the energy kind of dictate what people want to put for energy savings in their home? And I know there's not a black and white answer there, but I do tend towards the side of letting the individuals choose that. The other place is, of course, resilience, which is a big thing in California, especially right now. Resilience is a huge deal. And should resilience get in, in there? And the reason I say, you know, unelected, you said unelected officials, what's happening is the energy code, for instance, came down basically from the federal government through the National Institute for Building Sciences which basically NIBS is one of the major sources that the ICC goes to, to get many of their provisions, particularly those that relate to energy and energy efficiency and so forth. And so it comes through that process and then it goes into the building code and there's not really a lot of opportunity for legislative debate. The only way you get legislative debate is if the the legislature will pull the energy provisions out of the cold and debate them separately at the state level before adopting them. And that's actually kind of where I'm kind of promoting Utah is to get them to debate that as a separate thing rather than viewing it as, as an entire lump sum. So I think it needs to be subject to the legislative process more. If legislatures reflect the will of the people. And if the will of the people want more social engineering, and that's what I, I term social engineering because the energy code is kind of what I think. I think it's trying to make people become more energy efficient by mandating it, as opposed to letting prices dictate it or something like that. But I'd love to hear what you have to think, both of you. Just for my opinion on the going green and making it private, I think there should be a minimum. Like, hey, you can't be not neglect the environment because the environment uh, affects everybody. And I think the government should be in some way put a minimum. But if you want a 100% lead certified building and all that, uh, great. And I think that's what they do now, at least in California. It's nice to have if you really want it. I can see the the dangers in both of it too, just because, you know, for the most part, I, I'm for like supply and demand is Good, but then you can also see the dangers of it, just like in Texas with the energy bills where it was privatized. And then now the government's like coming in and be like, whoa, you can't charge this person $16,000 for their energy bill. But that's kind of like the supply and demand. So it's, I never look into this stuff with the legislation. So it's, it's great that I'm in this conversation because it's, it's definitely giving me things to think about. I have to agree that in theory, the philosophy of the free market makes so much sense. I'm currently in business school. I understand how free market should, in theory, drive the right things. A knowledgeable consumer should be able to decide what is best for them and be able to invest accordingly based on their priorities. I think there's a couple of issues here. Um, Earlier, you mentioned, you know, if the consumer is able to educate themselves like they should, then they should be able to make the right decisions for what they need. And they should be able to select those characteristics of a building, a house, whatever it might be, that makes sense for them and their family. I think, number one, I have an issue because not everyone knows what they need to know. And if you don't know what you don't need to know, you don't even know where to start. The other thing is that there are so many complexities to anything, like from a building code to a new product or a new technology, there's such a vast amount of information that needs to be considered to make the right decision. 
and consumers can't always arrive to the right information, access the right information. Not Information is still an inequitable space and not everyone knows where to go or how to access it. And I think the other thing is once you have access to the information, there's still a base level of knowledge, experience, something that needs to be able to then process that information and be able to ascertain what it is they need and what makes the most sense. Without someone walking them through I don't know if they can always make that decision. The consumer is not always right now because there's such an overwhelming density of information and variety of information in order for us to make basic decisions about our life. Security, how thick you want your house walls to be. I'm looking around my house right now thinking like, oh, geez, the, the amount of things as a, as a four, I've had my house for four years and the number of mistakes I've made are impressive. And I'm a knowledgeable, educated woman. I'm an engineer. I should know half of these things. And I don't. In respect to things like energy, it's really hard for me after this last week to think that a free market will result in something that's basic. Energy is essential. It's also something that does impact the greater community. And there can be decisions made by some who are knowledgeable consumers that will negatively impact other members of the community. And you can term it social engineering, and I definitely understand that. But I think there is a transition away from making social engineering or political decisions away from what's best for my community and for the future of our group, our state, our region. And I personally feel more comfortable when government does say there's a minimum threshold to how we need to consider green initiatives, how we need to consider renewable energy. Even when it comes to the resilience of a house and the fact that we shouldn't be building a house for a 25 or 50 year lifespan, it should be considered for a 100 year lifespan. And are those six inch walls going to provide those additional 50 years of service life over a four inch wall, a two by four and two by six, as you mentioned earlier? I, don't know, I guess that's kind of the thoughts that I'm in. In one of my articles, I actually, I referenced this uh, section 1204, I got it right here, 1204.1 that says, Interior spaces intended for human occupancy shall be provided with active or passive space heating systems capable of maintaining a miniature indoor temperature of 68 degrees at a 0.3 feet above the floor on a design heating day. And I said, what a great thing. I would love my home to have that. And the free market should allow me to choose to have that. But instead of being in the building code, I said it should be in a book called Great Ideas for Architects, Engineers, and Builders to Offer to Clients Who Want Nice, Comfortable Buildings. My response back would be to say if the um, consumer can't get educated about it, the people who are educated about it are the builders, the people who's going to sell you the home, that build you the home and sell you the home. They can provide, they could offer that and they could explain that. That would be one point back on, on saying, letting the consumer decide. I'm not all the way off the page on free market on that either. I do know that I'm not great at getting that balance yet. I'm not a libertarian who says there's no government, right? I do know the government does have some role and they do have some role in energy. I just happen to be more to the private sector side than to the government side whenever I have a choice. But I do recognize that government has to have some role in energy. It's always going to be about the debate of what minimum should we be at, right? With the role of government regulating you know, the corporate world, uh, especially with these economic times, it's been a lot more important. You can see it. What about the role of government in regulating construction? What are your thoughts on that? The government's role, there's a necessary role for sure. I do think, for instance, in California, there's two ways, really, that what we do is regulated. It's regulated on the licensure side by the licensing divisions. My hope, I actually feel like that should be the primary place where the regulation happens. 
In other words, the primary place is it's to stop people from getting into doing what we do, whether it's designing or constructing certain parts of construction without being passing the licensure. I personally see that as a very proper role of government, a very stringent licensing division that very much enforces and makes it difficult to become licensed, to pass that. But I also believe that that we should make it so that once that happens and that engineer does get licensed, they get that stamp and then personal ethics, then, then the code of ethics comes on to them. But at that point, then the state can say to the people, this person can design, this person can build for you and we trust them. Now, the second place of regulation comes in on the backside, and it doesn't come in in the red states. You go to Kansas, Oklahoma, you go to North Dakota, the plan review side is minimal. The many, many projects in the Midwest, smaller states, uh, where the, the building review comment that came back said, I see these stamped, these plans were stamped by the structural engineer, therefore they're approved. That was the totality of the uh, building department review. Central Valley, California. I don't know what's going on in the Central Valley, but we've done projects in the Central Valley where we've submitted plans and they've come back with 250, 300 comments. So I feel like California is kind of doing the belt and suspenders approach on regulating. That It kind of bothers me a lot because the problem with that is most of the time when that happens, it's not coming from a actual government official. It's uh, the jurisdictions are subbing it out to private enterprises who are doing plan reviews. And those plan reviews, they come back and they put a ton of burden on the design engineer to prove things, to justify a lot of things. And the engineer should be given a little bit more credit than that if they've been approved by the licensing division as saying, you're good enough to design a building. I mean, I've seen reasonable reviews, actually more reasonable reviews down in in Orange County in that area, in LA, than some of those that we got up in Central Valley. I don't know those those firms up there that are doing that. They're making a ton of money. We just, in our minds, we kind of estimated how many hours they probably got to bill for that. It kind of made us mad because they were getting probably half our fee and they had zero liability. On my end, that for sure, as a design engineer, I definitely agree with that. You should make some general comments, but now we're getting to the extremes where you get a plan checker that is really unreasonable to the point where, yeah, there's like stories where we could tell about like, we actually brought you the guy that made that code up, but then your interpretation is still, no, that's not how I interpret it. And then you're going back and forth. To that point, if you're getting that extreme, now it's just two engineers fighting with each other, like two licensed engineers fighting with each other. I don't think that's good for the owner and I don't think that's good for the project because it's gotten to the point where depending on the jurisdictions, that's gonna dictate the price of the engineering fees. Like, oh, we know that jurisdiction is really tough to get through. We're going to bump up the fees and it's going to cost the owner, et cetera, because, you know, it's, we know what that process is. If I was a building owner and uh, we had an engineer come in, I would want to do at least some type of third-party plan check. And I think as a building owner, we have that right, or even as a city. But then it does come to the point of what is too much. It's always that fine line of now it's just like you're squabbling over 0.01% reinforcement. Hopefully it doesn't get to that, but <laughs> it's always tough to find that medium. Uh, at least that's my two cents on that. I got to tell you, Matt, that's so funny you said that because just literally three hours ago, I'm putting a proposal together, Central Valley, California, and included in that fee, a lot of money for plan review response. 
plan review comment response, which was just a lesson learned that wouldn't have that money there if this project were going in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Yeah, same thing with a DSA, Department of School Architects in California. If you have that really strict, I think to me that makes sense. I mean, your kids and all that, yeah. Oshkosh and DSA, right, yeah. The essential structures, right, yeah. It's definitely a place, but then I know there's a lot of other ones that are just, you know, frustrate the design engineer. (laughs) You said essential structures, and I think the word essential has really taken on a whole new persona after this past year of, you know, essential personnel in a pandemic. And I think I'm feeling a little bit more acutely here again because the Texas freeze just happened last week. And so I'm thinking essential. Electricity. Energy is essential to keeping people warm in a, in a snowstorm. You talked about Oshkod and, and DSA, schools and hospitals. And we're kind of talking about where are some of these lines? Where's the happy range? And I mean, within the building code, are we looking at different occupancy types? Are we talk, looking at different structural systems or, or building types? And, and that should be a basis of where and how we consider not only the the level of scrutiny that your plans go under, but also the level of review, the just a lot of things are coming to mind right now. I love this. We get to, we, it's, it's nice to have a philosophical conversation. No, you're absolutely right though, too, because yeah, for sure. That's why I never had a problem with schools and hospitals, particularly in California. That's one place where they do. But I do feel like a lot of projects really can be, and that's why California allows PEs to design so many structures, right? And then you have to be an SE to design those other structures. But then that's, and that again, I feel like California does, they have the hardest exam or I got licensed in California. I got the California SE in 1997, you know, before they went to the national exam and they had by far the most stringent requirements to get licensed. And at the time I didn't like them because it was hard. Once you get there, you realize why you needed to get there. And I do feel like- Yeah, I've taken the SEs. I passed one of them and I'm passing the lateral. And yeah, it's, I get it, but I agree with you too. Like, yes, it's hard, but even all that seismic stuff, if you're designing in California, you need to know that stuff. And yeah, I agree with that. Do you believe that it's ethical to promote mandates for resilience within the building code? I wrote an article about this, about the ethics and politics of resilience, because we have what now is the USRC, the Resiliency Council, that's kind of coming out of California and Utah is kind of in with it. And I think it's gaining some momentum. It's kind of structural engineers, our version of the US Green Buildings Council, right? And it's going to give ratings. So I've seen engineers kind of jump on that bandwagon. But I don't think that they jump on the bandwagon with a full understanding of what they're really asking for. I think as engineers, our gut feeling is always, always to make it safer, make it safer, make it safer, make it safer. I love Vance Christensen was my, my major professor at Utah State. He said, this is the one thing I'll never forget. When in doubt, make it stout. That gets to kind of the core of what, what we do. We always want it to be safer. I feel like that's a general tendency of engineers, conservative nature, Especially once you're licensed, you know that if anything happens to that building, it's kind of on you. So we always seem to jump on the bandwagon of taking things more and more conservative. When I started hearing about resilience, it occurred to me that when we go to and, and ask about resilience, if we're going to mandate that into a building code, we're essentially starting to tell building owners, we're mandating to them how they need to spend money that is not affecting life safety. Because resilience gets into property maintenance beyond life safety. Back to the very beginning, I believe those building owners ought to be given the the opportunity to choose to do that or not choose to do that. 
So the reason I say it's there's ethics involved is because statistics have to be used when you start to talk about resilience. Mark Twain said there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics, right? Those were the three kinds of lies. And objective truth is hard to find in statistics. And we see this in politics all the time. The exact same statistics can bear out the left, can bear out the right, and they're the exact same statistics and they see them different ways, right? Or they present them differently. So my point was, if you're a structural engineer and you want to advocate for, for bringing resilience in under the building code so that you're mandating it on people, you need to realize what you're doing and that you are asking for a partial infringement of the rights of the building owners to make those decisions because you're mandating it to them rather than letting, let's say, insurance companies set insurance rates on their buildings based on how resilient they are and letting free market forces start to come into play. You just need to understand because I don't, I think way too many engineers just automatically plow down that road of, hey, we're going to make it safer. We're going to make it better. They're going to thank us 50 years from now when there's an earthquake or, or whatever, right? And rather than really saying, no, let's let the free market find some ways to do this. That's my two cents on resilience. I know the resilience in, in the industry, it's a pretty popular thing. Like you were saying, the bandwagon. The public doesn't even know what their buildings are designed for. It's not like you go buy a car and you get like the five-star rating on safety. No one knows. I guess the general public doesn't know about even their buildings. They buy a house and then I tell them like, you know, if a big earthquake hits, your house can completely collapse and at least you'll make it out of your house alive, but then you might need to buy a whole new house. I think they're trying to come out with some rating system on the resiliency or whatnot, but I think it comes down to kind of the public education too. If we could inform the public, then they can, hey, do you want to buy this house? It's old, uh, big earthquake hits, and you don't have insurance, it's going to collapse. You know that, right? Versus maybe you get more into like the newer buildings and kind of getting those ratings about, okay, if a big earthquake hits, what am I expecting this building is going to perform? Is it going to be occupiable or is it going to be minimum life safety and you might have to demolish it? I know it affects a lot, right? Because it's good for the structural engineering industry as a whole because you get more design, but then also for the public, I get your point in saying that to you about, well, they don't even know what they're getting, but they're probably going to have to pay a premium for it. Like boosting up the whole standards and do we want to incorporate that into the code when, I guess for me, the public doesn't even know what they're getting. Like, why are you bumping up my Netflix prices, right? <laughs> it's like, what'd you guys add? So for me, it's, yeah, it's that balance of uh, trying to do that. And I'm glad you brought that up because that, it's, it's some things that I've never really thought about. And I'm just thinking about it now off the top of my head. The only other perspective I would throw into the mix is that having witnessed Harvey a few years ago, um, seeing the effects of Katrina and, and the way that's still impacting, you know, Louisiana, Texas, all the surrounding states and, and their populations with Katrina refugees who moved someplace, found a new job and, you know, decided not to go back home. Whether or not resilience belongs in the building code, I think my perspective is at the end of the day, if something goes really wrong and we aren't prepared, who pays the bills? And if FEMA, which is being funded with federal funds, is cleaning up a significant portion of those major disasters that are a result of climate change, the people who have to pay at the end of the day, who are accountable, who are annying up for those large disasters, I think that they it's fair for them to have a seat at the table in determining what levels of resilience protection we should have in our infrastructure. And that, that goes beyond just structural systems and buildings, but that's where it comes down to for me. And I recognize insurance has a big part to play in that. And, you know, there's more people that, that ante up than just, you know, the federal government and, and even states reserves for emergencies. But if it doesn't come out of there, where else is it coming from? 
if the individual user of a building, if it, the public and the occupants aren't you know, savvy enough to know what they need to rally for, it would be my expectation that someone at the building code level is hopefully making choices on their behalf. And that's my hope. Maybe it's a very optimistic hope. One question I think that's unanswered in, in an assumption that you maybe you made is that all of the buildings that were damaged were actually built to the building code. Oh, and that's a whole other can of worms we could open up is what are the construction practices? Yeah. Right. Because if they weren't, then changing the building code isn't going to help. If we could find out, that would be a great thing to know that we don't know, is how much damage really happened to buildings that were actually designed to the building code. Because most likely, a lot of those houses were either not designed or not built to the building code. But we just don't know. We don't know for sure. And that would be something that would be good to know. I definitely get that. And making the building code more complex for the sake of making it more complex and selling a new copy does not help with the construction on the end of the at the end of the does not. No, it does not. <laughs> totally. I hear you. What advice would you give to engineers that are considering a career in structural engineering? I remember when I was a sophomore. I mean, I still remember it. It was my sophomore year at Utah State, statics. I took statics. Within a week, I'm going home and I, I realized I look forward to my homework. I liked what I did so much that I looked forward to my homework. And at that point, I knew I had picked the right career. I never enjoyed um, my homework in my chemistry class. So I love what I do and I've never dreaded going to work. So I say pick structural engineering if you love doing this. If you love doing structural engineering, it's going to be a good career to you and it's going to treat you well. Choose this out of a love of structural engineering and then go earn your fame and fortune. If you strive to be the best that you can be or the best at structural engineering, it will treat you well. It's a great profession. I absolutely love what I do. And I would encourage you, you know, kids who love that should seek this out as a profession. And if you don't love it, there's always electrical engineering. (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) No, wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) That's great advice. Uh, Thanks for coming on and sharing your insights with us. I really appreciate this. Both of you, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 48, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.